Well, verse 1 of Exodus 13. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast. It belongs to me. It belongs to me. Sanctify to me every firstborn. Now I want you to notice something as Israel begins to move out. God apparently wants them to remember some things. There are three particular things that he wants them to remember. And he gives them three mnemonic memorials. Three memory devices. Three anchor points that they can tie into and that they will be able to tie into. Even Jews today can look back to these three things to think about and to consider how God feels about them. He wants them to remember where they're coming from. He, he wants to remember what they are about to become. And he wants to, them to remember who they belong to as sons. I'll give those to you again. He wants them to remember where they're coming from. He wants them to remember what they are about to become. And thirdly, who they belong to as sons. And he gives them three devices again to remember these things, to recall these things, to bring these things to mind on an annual basis. The first one is the Passover. Remember where you've come from, Israel. He gives them the Passover to be mindful of their salvation, mindful of the fact that he pulled them out of Egypt. Every year, even again to this date, when the Jews celebrate Passover, they celebrate that amazing time when God drew them out of Egypt and called them a nation. He said, You're mine. You are my people. Well, they were his people drawing all the way back to Abraham and that small little family that grew all the way to Jacob. And when they came into Egypt, 70 people strong, they were God's people, but they weren't God's nation, not yet. He used Egypt to build them up to that point. And then as he drew them out now for the first time, he was treating them as a nation, dealing with them as a nation. And he is their God and he wants them to remember where they're coming from. The Passover. Be mindful of your salvation, the Lord would say. Secondly, what they are about to become, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now we talked about both Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread last week in our study. But he wants them to be mindful not only of their salvation, but also of their sanctification. That is what they are about to become. Israel is now stepping into the process of becoming the people of God. And as you well know, even as Christians today, for us, it is an ongoing process, the process of sanctification. It is our life process. It's what God is doing in us, continually sanctifying us. He saved us in the same way that He saved Israel, pulling them out in the Passover, but now He's sanctifying us in the same way that He sanctified Israel. And so He gave them the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Get the leaven out. Get the leaven out of your life. Get the sin out. Be mindful of your salvation in the Passover. Be mindful of your sanctification with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Two annual observances. But there's a third observance. Not necessarily annual, but it is an observance just the same, and that is the consecration of the firstborn. The consecration of the firstborn because God wants Israel to be mindful of their sonship. Mindful, first, of their salvation in Passover, second, of their sanctification in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and thirdly, mindful of their sonship in what he's asking them to do right now. Verse 2, sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast, it belongs to me. So every time a firstborn son was born into a house of Israel, 
into a Jewish family. That firstborn was consecrated to the Lord and for a very specific reason, which we'll talk about in a moment. But God wants them to be mindful of these things. Mindful of salvation, mindful of their sanctification, mindful of their sonship. He wants their minds full of Him. Full of His plans for them. Now, let's read on as Moses talks a little bit more about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We're going to come back to this thought of the consecration of the firstborn. But verse 3, Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out from Egypt, from the house of slavery. For by a powerful hand the Lord brought you out from this place. Remember God said He would. Back in chapter 4 of Exodus, He said, I'm going to bring you out with a mighty hand, a strong, a powerful hand. Egypt's going to know it's not just you leaving, it's me leading. It's me pulling you out. And so he says, For by a powerful hand the Lord brought you out from this place, and nothing leavened shall be eaten. On this day in the month of Abib, you are about to go forth. It shall be when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall observe this rite in this month. Get this picture. Here is all Israel gathered. They're set to go. They're dressed for the road. They're ready to take on the journey. They're all gathered there in this huge, massive group. And Moses stands up and begins to speak to all the people. By some estimates, three million strong. And as Moses speaks to them, these are the things he's saying. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Which is nice because after seven days of unleavened bread, you're going to want some real food. Unleavened bread shall be eaten throughout the seven days, and nothing leavened shall be seen among you. Nor shall any leaven be seen among you in all your borders. We talked about that last week. The Jews today will go through a massive spring cleaning, get all of the leaven out of the house. And if getting rid of all the leaven would prove a hardship for them, they can actually sell the leaven to a neighbor and then buy it back after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But their houses are supposed to be completely cleaned of all leaven. It's called the process of nullification, which again we discussed last week. But verse 8, Moses goes on and says, You shall tell your son on that day, saying, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. See, Moses knows, God knows, there are going to be children born who were never a part of this process. Never saw the ten plagues. Never saw how God led them out with a mighty hand. They needed something to ring a bell. Something to bring to mind a thing that they hadn't seen with their own eyes. Much in the same way that we take communion. We take that on a weekly basis to bring to mind the crucifixion of Christ. We weren't there. We didn't see it. We didn't experience Christ on the cross. We didn't see the agony that He went through. But isn't it amazing how weekly as we take communion together, we're there. We're reminded. We are mindful of God's love for us. And that's what He wants. He wants them to be mindful. He says, verse 9, It shall serve as a sign to you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth for with a powerful hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, you shall keep this ordinance at its appointed time from year to year. He wants it to be a sign on their hands and on their foreheads. And I thought about this. On their hands and on their foreheads. Well, if it's on your hand, you'll see it. You'll remember. Now, I've got a Palm Pilot. And that's kind of what we're talking about here. It's God's palm pilot. He wants this on their hands. So they're looking down. They're thinking about it. For me, my palm pilot beeps whenever I've got an important thing to go to or an important meeting. A little beep goes off and I look down. Oh, I'm supposed to meet with Russ <laughs> yesterday. Well, make it there. And I can cross that out. But I take that thing with me and I have to live by that thing. 
Cheryl has a Palm Pilot too. She takes a pen and just writes it right on her hand. That's pretty much her Palm Pilot. It's right there. But she remembers. And our hands, think about it. We have phrases like, man, I know this as well as the back of my hand. Well, we know our hands. We're familiar with them. God's saying, I want this to be as obvious, as well known to you as your hand. When you think about this thing, I want it to be as if it were written right on your own hand. That you see it there. That you're familiar with it. He also says, I want it on your foreheads. Now, I think that's kind of funny. Because we don't see our foreheads. We don't see them unless we're looking in the mirror. So if we had something written on our foreheads, you know, yeah, this would crack me up. If Cheryl on a Sunday morning was talking to someone and they said, hey, let's go out Friday night. She said, great, grabbed a pen and wrote it backwards on our forehead. And then saw it in the mirror and that would remind so we wouldn't do that. But who sees our foreheads? Other people do. Other people see it. I want this sign not only for you to know, but for others to know. For others to see in you. To be aware of in you. I think about times when I used to wear glasses, and it's, it's really nice not having to wear them anymore. But when I used to do it, I'd put them up on my head, and then I'd completely forget they were there. Because you get so used to feeling them there. And I'd go around looking for my glasses. Has anybody seen my glasses? And Hannah would say, Dad, they're right on your head. Oh, <laughs> that's great. But see, she saw something. She saw it on me. She saw it on my forehead. And in the same way, God says, hey, when your children see you doing this, it'll be like a sign on your forehead. They'll see you doing this feast of unleavened bread and they'll say, what's going on? I don't understand this. And for every adult in Israel who's done it over and over and over, that they're so familiar with it, it's like the glasses on the forehead, and they've almost forgotten what it's about, the child will say, what's going on with this? And then you're reminded. Suddenly it's brought back to your memory and you pass it on to the child. That's what's going on here. Now, the Jews unfortunately later responded with the idea of having something literally, physically bound to their hands and to their foreheads. You may have heard of the phrase phylacteries, or the word phylacteries, little boxes in which they would put scriptures. And the Pharisees especially were famous for this. They would tie these things onto their forehead, strap them on, a little box right on their forehead or on the back of their hand. And in those boxes were placed certain scriptures for remembrance, but the time long since passed in Jesus' day when they were there for remembrance. They became something not to help them think about God or remember the Lord they became something to make them look religious. As a matter of fact, the bigger the phylactery, the more religious the Pharisee. Now that must have gotten pretty interesting. Guys walking around with boxes on their foreheads. Yes, I'm a very spiritual man. My back's hurting, my neck's a little sore, but I'm very spiritual. You can see this in me. Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 1, He said, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. (laughs) Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. Do what they say, but he says, do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and they lengthen the tassels. What's that about? Well, the tassels would be on their prayer shawls. And the longer the tassel, the more intense the praying man, apparently. So they would lengthen the tassels to make themselves look like they're praying deeply and intensely. And they would broaden their phylacteries, make them bigger, to make themselves look spiritual. And that is exactly what religion does. Religion makes salvation into a heavy burden. It takes grace and makes it weighty. It turns passion into posturing. That's what religion does. And if faith becomes a weight, 
or a burden or a matter of looks. It is not of the Lord. It comes from a very different place. Speaking of signs on the hand and the forehead, there are a couple other places in the Bible that refer to signs that will be on the hand or the forehead. Back in the end of the Bible, book of Revelation, a couple of things that we can see there that are interesting. Marks that the Bible says will be put into place during the tribulation. The first one is God's seal. God's seal. Revelation chapter 7 verse 1. God's seal will be a a reminder of salvation. Let me just read this to you. You can flip there if you'd like to. Revelation chapter 7 verse 1. After this, John says in this grand revelation, he says, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel descending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and sea. Now get this picture. John's seeing this. He's experiencing this this picture of what is going to happen. A picture of something that has not yet happened, even in our time, but will happen. And as John is receiving this picture of this horrible time, these four angels are at the corners of the earth, and they are about to unleash some of God's wrath and fury. But another angel comes down, and he's got with him a seal, and he says, Hang on, guys! Don't do anything yet! Reading on, he cried out with a loud voice to whom, to the angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and sea, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. So God has a mark. God has a special seal that will be for his bondservants during the tribulation. Well, who are the bondservants? Well, the Bible goes on in chapter 7 of Revelation to tell who those people are. 144,000 people gathered from specifically the 12 tribes of Israel. 144,000 Jewish people who during that tribulation period will come to a faith in Jesus and will serve as little Billy Grahams running all over the earth. They're going to be preaching, evangelizing. And as this goes on, they are given a specific seal, a seal of protection, a seal of salvation that will be on their foreheads. Interesting. A special mark that will literally save them from God's wrath. But there will be another mark as well, one that's probably more familiar to you. It's been talked about quite a bit, and that's the mark of the beast. Satan's mark. But while God's seal on the forehead is a reminder of salvation and protection, the mark of the beast is a reminder of damnation. Listen to this, Revelation 13, verse 16. He, referring to Antichrist, calls, causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the freemen and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. And we see a great contrast here between Satan's mark and God's seal. The Lord wants you and I to be mindful of our salvation. And indeed, during the revelation, during the, during the tribulation, God will give this seal to help the people, the 144,000 sealed believers, be mindful of their salvation. However, Satan just wants to fill people's minds with bondage. You have that mark. And you have to have that mark. And without that mark, you will not be able to buy. You will not be able to sell. You will not be able to function. My father-in-law 
came back from Coopville today. He and my mom were down there, and they were they were just running around doing some stuff and meeting and talking with some friends, and discovered that here in Island County, beginning in January, the inspectors are going to now be able to go onto any property, go up to anybody's front door, and knock on it and ask if any new building or things have gone on, so that they can raise taxes. And he was furious. He's like, isn't that like an invasion of privacy? They can just walk right onto my private property and see what I've done on my private property. He's a little disappointed because he was hoping to set up a gun range on our property, which we're probably not going to be able to do now. But he's saying it's, it's our private, it's our right. And, and it does seem like bit by bit little things just keep being taken away. Freedoms keep being taken from us. It's nothing like it's going to be during the tribulation. Where the beast says you can't even buy something unless you have... My mark. Well, the Lord wanted the minds of Israel to be full of Him. And so in the Passover again, He said, Remember, I saved you. In the Feast of Unleavened Bread, He's saying, Remember, I sanctified you. But now back to the consecration of the firstborn, where He wants them to remember He called them sons. Verse 11. Now when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, as He swore to you and to your fathers, and gives it to you, you shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb, and the first offspring of every beast that you own. The males belong to the Lord. Exodus 13.12 In the King James Version, just to put a finer point on it, listen to the way it reads. Thou shalt set apart unto the Lord all that openeth the matrix. And we're not talking about Keanu Reeves here. All that openeth the matrix. This is King James language. What it means is what all that comes out of the womb that opens from the inside out and comes out of the womb. It is very specific language. The firstborn child. The firstborn son that comes out of the womb in your home, in your family, is mine, says the Lord. Let me be absolutely clear, says the Lord. Your firstborn Son belongs to me. It's intentionally graphic language. A depiction of the first one to literally open the womb from the inside out so that no one will miss the importance of the consecration of the firstborn. Verse 13. He says, But every first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. But if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? Then you shall say to him, With a powerful hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. It came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of men to the firstborn of the beast, or of beast. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord every the male, the first offspring of every womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem. So it shall serve as a sign, here we go again, on your hand, and as phylacteries on your forehead. By the way, that word phylacteries that is translated in the New American Standard is just bound up on your forehead. So it should serve as a sign on your hands, and it should be bound up on your forehead, for with a powerful hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Why is this so important to the Lord, this idea of the firstborn son belonging to Him? Well, again, we see another contrast. Because if you may recall, the pagans in Egypt, many of the Egyptian gods required the death of the firstborn. Required that the firstborn animal or the firstborn child that came into a household was sacrificed, literally, to that Egyptian god. Now, this bothered me a little bit because I thought, wow, I mean, so now God is saying the firstborn are to be his. The firstborn now belong to his. And among the animals, there is sacrifice. But here's where it's different. 
God says, every firstborn of my sons I redeem. God here is laying claim to the ownership of the firstborn of every family. But he's also setting up a pattern that will be followed down the line and will point to a bigger act of redemption. He's saying, you need to redeem the firstborn. Well, how do we redeem the firstborn? You redeem them with a lamb. You sacrifice a lamb, and in that way, the, the firstborn is now consecrated, paid for. He's mine, bought back. He belongs to me. And gang, listen to this, and it's amazing to me. If Israel had followed God's plan, if they had trusted Him, if they had obeyed Him, then guess who the priesthood would have been made up of? The firstborn of every family of Israel. It wouldn't have been the Levites. Now you know that the Levites, the Levitical priesthood, the Levites, tribe of Levi, they were the ones who became the priests of Israel. But that wasn't God's plan A. That wasn't the original plan. The original plan was that every firstborn son of any of the families of Israel, of all of the families of Israel, would be born, would be consecrated, and would enter the priesthood of Israel. Which means the priesthood would have been scattered out among all the people and not just among one tribe, one clan. Well, why was it that, uh, that Levi got the job? How did they end up with that? Well, we'll read the story when we get to chapter 32 in Exodus. And it's a bloodbath. You see, Moses comes down the mountain with the Ten Commandments in hand. And as he comes down, the Lord says to him, there is partying in the camp. And he comes down and sees, and it's a whole golden calf incident. And Moses stands up and says, who will stand with the Lord? And one tribe did, Levi. And on that day, Moses, by the direct command of the Lord, commanded the Levites, take a sword and you go out and you slay those who are against the Lord. And 3,000 of their fellow Israelites were killed that day by the Levites. They were consecrated in blood. And we'll look at that more closely when we get there. Chapter 32. An amazing story. But God, again, His original intent was that the firstborn of every family in Israel would be consecrated to the priesthood. And that, by the way, is His intention for you and I as well. Which is kind of funny if you think about it. We are intended to be priests. You guys don't look like priests. I don't look like a priest. And yet, that's what we are called to. Every adopted believer, every Christian, is consecrated for the priesthood. Consecrated by the blood of Jesus. Covered by His blood, saved and consecrated, brought into the priesthood. 1 Peter 2.9, you're a chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for God's own possession. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You've been consecrated for the priesthood. And that doesn't mean you have to preach next Sunday if you'd like to give me a call. But what it means is that you now are a proclaimer of God's wondrous mysteries. You are a proclaimer of His salvation. You are a proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus. You are a part of the royal priesthood. Revelation 1.6 John said, He has made us to be a kingdom, priest to His God and Father. To Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And Revelation 20 verse 6 tells us, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these things the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. Priests of God. Spencer, you're a priest. A priest of the Lord. Steve. Priest Steve. Father Steve? I don't know. Amazing. We are priests unto God. Wow. But to become a priest, 
you got to be consecrated. So how do we get consecrated? We'll look back at verse 13. This is an amazing verse. But every first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. But if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck, and every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. The only animal mentioned here, aside from the lamb that is for redeeming, is a donkey. It's the only one. They had other animals, and they had other unclean animals as well. But God singles out the donkey. Why does he single out the donkey among all the animals? Well, consider this with me for a moment. We know the lamb speaks of Jesus. Then who would the donkey speak of? Democrats. <laughs> no, it's not the Democrats. <laughs> Actually, it would be the Democrats and the Republicans. The donkey speaks of you and I. And the picture here is absolutely amazing. But let me be more clear. Let me read this verse to you in the King James Version. Every firstling of an ass thou shalt redeem with a lamb. Do you get what I'm putting down here? That the lamb is used to redeem the donkeys of the world. It's us. And it's a picture of us. And you're going, how is that a picture? I'm no donkey. Come on. Okay, gang. Donkeys in the Bible are mentioned many times. You see them throughout the scriptures. In the Middle East, donkeys are a very common animal. But what's interesting in the scriptures is most often when a donkey is referred to, it is negative. It's a negative connotation. Let me give you these verses, and this is what I said earlier. We're going to move quickly through these. Watch this. Genesis chapter 16, verse 12. It's the first mention of a donkey in Scripture. And what is it referring to? Ishmael. And it tells us he will be a wild donkey of a man, and his hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. The donkey here, first mention of a donkey in Scripture, speaks of an outcast. It speaks of one who is aside from his brothers, who is against other people, who other people are against, an outcast. Second mention of a donkey is Genesis 22, verse 3. When Abraham is taking Isaac to Mount Moriah, and Abraham, the Bible tells us, rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey. Well, it's a simple picture, it's an obvious picture. Of course he would saddle his donkey if he was going to ride it. But what does it speak of? A loss of freedom. The donkey is now going to do what the master says. He's going to go where the master wants him to go. And he is now saddled with the burden. Well, Genesis 22, verse 5, a couple verses later, as Isaac and Abraham come to Mount Moriah, Abraham says, stay here with the donkey to his servants, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship. The donkey's not going to go to worship. The donkey's staying over here. Abraham and Isaac go to worship. The donkey is still on the outside. Reading on, Genesis 49, verse 14. Jacob is now blessing Issachar. And he says, Issachar is a strong donkey. However... He bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and become a, and became a slave at forced labor. So we see again a picture of burden, a picture of slavery, of bondage. This is what this beast is about, the beast of burden. Exodus chapter 13, verse 13, right where we are, we see either redeem the donkey or break his neck. But he needs help. He needs something. You can't just leave the donkey alone. You've got to redeem that firstborn of the donkey or you've got to break his neck. Deuteronomy chapter 22 verse 10 tells us you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Now that's not just good sense, but it's a picture here, it's an implication that comes in this verse that if there's an ox around, the donkey is now shut out of service. So we've got this beast of burden, we've got this outcast, we've got this one not allowed to worship, we've got this, this picture of something that now is shut out of service if there's someone around who can do a better job. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 3. 
Saul's father, Kish, that was his name, Kish. And Kish had lost his donkeys. His son Saul later would lose his marbles, but that's another story. 1 Samuel 9.3 tells us, So Kish said to his son Saul, Take now with you one of the servants, and arise, go search for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, and passed through the land of Shalisha, or Shalisha, but they did not find them. Then they passed through the land of Sha'alim, but they were not there. And then they passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find them. Finally Saul said, We better go home, because Dad's going to think we're lost too. Forget the donkeys, let's go home. So here the donkeys in this picture speak of lostness. And the picture just continues to spiral downward. Donkeys are not well favored in scripture. It goes on, Jeremiah 22 verse 19. Prophesying judgment on the evil of King Jehoiakim. Jeremiah says he will be buried with a donkey's burial. Oh, well what kind of a burial does a donkey get? He describes it. Dragged off and thrown out beyond the city gates of Jerusalem. That's how a donkey gets buried. It dies, kick it out of the city, toss it out. Drag it through the streets and chuck it out there. It speaks of being tossed out of God's city. Another negative about the donkey. Overall, these are not good pictures for donkey kind. And if donkeys were able to do a Bible study, they would probably just as soon skip over some of these verses because it does not look good for the beast of burden. But then an amazing prophecy comes along. Something incredible happens in Scripture. Mind-boggling. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. And he is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. Even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Would you flip over to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21 in your Bibles. begin right in verse 1 of Matthew 21 let me just read this with you follow along and I want you to turn there because there is literally something you want to underline or circle if you do so in your Bible very very important phrase here Matthew 21 verse 1 when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. That's the phrase. The Lord has need of them. That's the one to underline. And immediately he will send them. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken of through the prophet. We just read this from Zechariah 9.9. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them. And he sat on the coats. I love that line. The master has need of them. If anyone stops you when you go to get the donkey, you just say, hey, the Lord needs them. The Lord has need of the donkeys. And the guy will let you go. And in one of the other Gospels, we see that that actually happened. When they went to get the donkey, someone said, hey, what are you doing? They said, the Lord has need of them. And the guy said, oh, okay, go ahead. And he takes the donkey out to the Lord, and the Lord rides in on the donkey. Would you please personalize that tonight? The Lord has need of you. The Lord has need of you. He chose a donkey. Interesting that it wasn't one of the great steeds of Rome. It was a donkey. 
His coat didn't shine bright white as a stallion. It didn't, appear, it didn't bear a beautiful golden saddle as some of the horses in Rome would have had on their backs. It was covered instead with the dusty coats of the disciples. It wasn't ridden by a powerful procurator riding into the town, but by the Prince of Peace, who we obviously know is the great and glorious king. But he elevates the donkey here to a precious and important position of service. He takes this donkey, this outcast, and think again about what the donkey is a picture of. An outcast, saddled up, tied down, heavily burdened, shut out of service, tossed, lost, and left for dead outside of God's city. That's what those verses gave us a picture of with the donkey. And it's a picture of you and I. That without Christ, before Christ, we were outcasts. We were saddled, tied down, heavily burdened, shut out of service, tossed, lost, left for dead. Just like the donkey. But the Master has need of them. The Master has need of you. The Master has need of me. And though it's a thought that is mind-boggling, it's overwhelming at times, it's unbelievable. It's true. It is true. What do I have that the Master needs? Just a donkey. I'm not smart. I'm not talented. I can show up and warm a chair, but that's about it. What do I really have that God can use? Hey, the Master has need of you. I don't know what God has that He wants to use in you. I'm having enough trouble figuring it out myself. But the Master, the Master has need of you. And these are wonderful implications. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen. The things that are not. So that He may nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before God. But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so Exodus 13.13 tells us, Every offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. I have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb which is why I'm eminently qualified for service in His kingdom two qualifications that I have one, I've been redeemed as a Lamb and two, I'm one of the foolish things of the world and because of those two things I meet the qualifications it's not our beauty it's not our strength it's not our wisdom it's not our talents it's not our gifts none of those things qualify us for the kingdom None of those things qualify us to be used of the Prince of Peace, of the Master, of the King, as he enters into his city. None of those things matter. Just this, that we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. A lamb for a donkey. Interesting. Interesting. Well, back to Exodus chapter 13. Look in verse 17, we'll read on. Now when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Hence God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. And the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. By the way, martial array simply just means they went out in orderly fashion. In rows, literally rows probably of five as they headed out in order on the map the shortest way the fastest way the most logical way to get from Egypt up to the promised land up to Canaan was not the way God chose 
Now this is interesting to me. I didn't realize this before. But when you try and figure out what is it, what's God doing here, why is it that he's leading them the harder way instead of the easy way, part of the answer is right here. God saw that the people could not, what the people could not see. God knew something Israel did not know. And that's if they went the easy way, they would run into the Philistines. And if it was a particularly bad day among the Philistines, they might be a little testy, and they might come after them, they might cause war, and if the Israelites saw war, they could, they could become afraid and rush back to Egypt. For remember, the Israelites had not been a people very long, other than slaves. They had not been a mighty nation. They were not known for the great battles that they would be known for years to come. Ultimately, Israel will be feared by all of the nations in Canaan's land, but not now. Right now, the fact that they got out of Egypt at all is an absolute and unequivocal miracle. But the Lord knew the heart of Israel, and he knew at this point in her young history as a nation that that heart would fail if they came up against the mighty Philistines. God knows what's coming in our lives as well. In fact, not only does God know what's coming in our lives, but he also knows our hearts and knows what we can handle. And so sometimes God will leave us in a circuitous route instead of the straight direction that we think we ought to have. And my family is experiencing this big time. The easy direction would have been buy a house, move in, and take care of that a year ago and not be dealing with this. That was not the, the direction God had in mind for my family and for my in-laws. Sorry to drag you into it, Mom. But he's taking us the circuitous route, the, the circle, the, the different route, not the straight one, that there was an easy way. Just go, go by, move it, don't worry about all this stuff. But God says, no, no, I've got a different plan, and around we go. And there may be points in your life where you feel that way. You're going, why, why am I having to wait for this, God? Why can't I just have an answer now? Why do I have to, to go about this, this seemingly difficult and, and ridiculous direction when Canaan's land is right there? This would be the easier way. God takes us the harder way on purpose. He takes us a direction He knows we need to go. And in the meantime, remember the cloud. The cloud that we talked about on Sunday. He's got you covered. And He's given us great company as we go on this journey. And He is conforming us to be like Jesus. But there's another reason why God takes them the long way home. Not just that the Philistines are there and he sees what's coming and he knows their hearts would fail. There's a secondary reason. And if you think back to Exodus 12 in our last study, we saw this great company of Israel as they prepared to leave Egypt. Oh, they were ready to go. First of all, they had dined for remembrance. Again, the Passover. They shared that first Passover. They had eaten of it. They had dined. They were ready to go. They were invigorated. But secondly, they were dressed for the road. They were dressed for the road, ready to go when the call came. Let me read this to you. Exodus 12, verse 11, tells us the Lord said, well, the Lord told them to eat the Passover, and He said, do it this way, quote, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. And then verse 34 tells us, as they went out, that they had their kneading bowls bound up in clothes on their shoulders. Now think about what this is a picture of here. Their loins are girded. We talked about this. They, they pulled up and girded up the loins and it looked like they were wearing big baggy shorts. Walking shorts. Hiking shorts. So they're dressed with their hiking shorts on and they have sandaled feet like ancient pairs of tevas. Okay? They've got the hiking shorts. They've got the tevas. Staff in hand. They've got their walking stick. And what do they have on their back? But their backpacks. 
They are ready to go. They're ready to hike. Backpacks, walking sticks, tevas, hiking shorts. They're ready to get out of Dodge. God has them all dressed and ready for the road. And what's interesting is that the shortest distance travel-wise from Egypt to Canaan was due east. If you start in, let's see if I can do this backwards for you, if you start up in Goshen and head to Canaan's land, you would head right across the top of Egypt, real close to the Mediterranean Sea, straight across, and that journey, gang, though it would have taken them into Philistine territory on the Egyptian military highway, it would have taken them 10 days travel time to get to, to the Canaan's land, to the promised land. 10 days. That's all it would have been. Saddle up, let's go, we're hiking. Just a quick hike, 10 days, and we will be home, gang. I'm going to get you back to Canaan. But instead of going east, God takes them south. He takes them first to Mount Sinai, where they worship. And not only God, they worship another God as well. That's unfortunate, we'll see that. But they worship at Sinai, but then even from Sinai. He doesn't then take them back up and over. He takes them further down into the wilderness of Shur in the Sinai Peninsula, a desolate, deserted, horrible place. The long way. And the route that God chooses would take them a year to get to the border of the promised land. Whereas they could have just gone ten days and been home. What's the deal with this? Why would God do this? Why take this long trip instead of just the short, quick way? There was an easy way home. Isn't the shortest distance between two lines or between two points a straight line? Isn't it better to make good time? I mean, that's the way we tend to think about things. Isn't it better to get where you're going? The journey's the problem. We just want to be home. Hey, after Christmas, we'll see this more fully, but I'll go ahead and start to tell you a bit about this tonight. Along the way, during this year-long journey that takes them from Goshen all the way to Kadesh Barnea on the border of the, of the Promised Land, Israel will make seven stops. They will have seven campsites along the way. And if you watch what happens, you'll see two of them in just a moment. Every campsite, there is a valuable and important lesson that is learned. Something is taught at each of these seven stops along the way. God has a plan. He is setting something in motion. He's got an idea in mind. The first of the seven major stops we've already seen is Sukkoth. Sukkoth, which means tent town, which is the perfect first stop for a group of sojourners. A group of people who were not to build houses. No, they were to come to Tent Town and they stopped there at Tent Town. And it's a picture right there on their very first stop of a people that God wants to teach how to sojourn and trust Him. Tent Town. Now, there may be people who think that as a Christian you're a little too intense. And you say, that's exactly right. I am intense because God doesn't want me living in a house. I live in tents get my pun here. I'm intense for the Lord. But it's a great picture. I'm intense. I'm not I'm not rooted here. This is not my home. I'm just a passing through. I don't belong here. This is not for me. You know, when we studied through the book of Genesis, we kept coming back to this idea of sojourning over and over and over again. Because Abraham was a sojourner, and Isaac was a sojourner, and Jacob was a sojourner. And then Joseph goes up to Egypt, and the people of Israel, Israel's children, come to Egypt because of the famine. And where is the first place they really settle? In Egypt. And when they settle there, they stay for 430 years settling in a bad place. 
But you know, God's got to do something here. It's one thing to bring the people out of Egypt. But God's got to get Egypt out of the people. He's got to pull that sense of being settled out of them. He's got to pull the the paganistic rituals, the things that they saw and experienced there, out of them. He's got to retrain them to get them to see the world and to see Him in a different way. It is one thing to get the people out of Egypt. It's yet another to get Egypt out of the people. And even, by the way, with this one year of training and the seven different stops along the way, when the people get to Kadesh Barnea, their hearts fail, they falter, they're faithless, and because of that, God says, apparently you're not ready yet for the promised land. And so they would, they would wander for 40 more years in that wilderness, learning what it meant to be people who trusted in the Lord. And so it goes with you and me. It's easy to get out of Egypt. That's what happens. Anyone gives their life to Christ. Now remember, Egypt is a picture of what in the Bible? What is Egypt a picture of? The world. It's a picture of the world. And you see this over and over. And as Egypt is a picture of the world, in the same way for us, it's easy to come to Christ. It truly is. I mean, you, you have to make that you got to set this aside the pride long enough to say, Yes, okay, I need you, Lord. I want to be a Christian. I want to be yours. I want to be your child. And so you come to Christ, and you can get out of the world. The hard part is getting the world out of us. Retraining our thinking. Taking us on this journey of faith, which is exactly what our lives are about. Romans 12, verse 1. A familiar verse, Paul says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living and holy sacrifices acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And I think about this often, but I wonder... What is the kind of journey that God has in store for the bridge? What's He doing? What does He want to have happen for this group of people? For this small church on North Whidbey Island? For this body of believers? What does He want for us? And He hasn't quite shown us yet. In fact, as it is with many of our lives personally, He just gives us little bits at a time. This whole thing that happened with the property at Troxel and 20 really kind of spun me around. Because I thought we had it. We're just going to call the guy, make our offer. We're willing to offer his full price if we needed to. We, and we just, we're ready to go. This is going to be a good thing. And next thing we know, he's saying, no, I'm not going to sell it. So I'm thinking, well, Lord, <laughs> you want a church on that property. I know you do, because we made an offer on the land. So, of course, you would want, isn't that what you want? What are you doing, Lord, with the Bridge Christian Fellowship? I'll tell you something about the Troxel property. Wes, we were talking about this Sunday. This may yet be the property that that church is, that this church is supposed to be on, but it's not God's time. That we know for sure. Whether it's that property or some somewhere else, it's not God's time. Right now, God has us here, and apparently, we have some more things to learn. Apparently, as a body of believers, God has more that He wishes to do right here, right now, in this place. And so we step back and say, Okay, Lord, show us. Teach us. If we need seven campsites along the way, do that, Father. If it will draw us closer to you. Remember, gang, any time that you're feeling stuck in your life, or stymied or stalled in your sojourn on the earth, God is working out one of two 
great purposes His great purposes for mankind in your life Number one is to draw us into salvation That is purpose number one For any person who has ever lived To be drawn into salvation That's why a person is born onto this earth That God will save them That they will be drawn into salvation To bring them out of Egypt But the second Which is probably where most of you are at tonight Is to develop us for eternity To draw us to salvation But once we've been saved He's going to spend the rest of the time in our lives Developing us for eternity In other words bringing the Egypt out of us He can bring us out of the world pretty quickly But it's that other side Bringing Egypt out of us It's why we sojourn It's why we continue to live The lives that we're living It's why we struggle It's why we hurt I was talking with them Nicola and Charlene tonight and they asked for prayers for their daughter who has a lump in her breast and was at the doctor today and they're very very concerned about her and so before we're done tonight we're going to pray for her unless if you'll remind me I don't want to let that go by I was talking to Charlene and she made the comment do you really think that God uses tragedy and hurtful things even in our lives and I used to not think so because you know, being a pretty positive guy, pretty optimistic, I used to always say, you know, God allows bad things to happen, but He doesn't cause them. I'm not so sure anymore. I have come to the point in my life where I actually believe that God causes bad things to happen. Why would He do that? Because the good thing, which is our salvation, is vastly more important to the Lord. My light and momentary difficulties here on earth, as Paul says, my few little trials that come and go are nothing compared to eternity and if God has to break my arm or as we talked about weeks ago with the little sheep if he's got to break my leg to keep me from wandering off so that I can be healed and then cling to him with the rest of my life then by all means Lord break it if God has to hurt a family member to bring them to the Lord then by all means Lord hurt them there is great compassion great mercy and vast eternal love in a God who would say even if it hurts you in this life I will do it if it will draw you closer to me in eternity if it will either A. save you or B. develop you for the reason you were created and that's eternal life with me so we may have painful times and yes they may even be from the Lord himself but remember his perspective is your salvation to draw you in and to develop you, to develop you for eternity. Let me read you another verse. This is first Peter chapter one. Verse three. Peter writes this beautifully. As he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He says, To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, verse 6, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. 
So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Well, God takes Israel on a circuitous route instead of a straight line. This is what he does. And many times in our lives, coming back to this thought, he will take us around the long way, the hard way, the difficult way. Verse 19, back in Exodus 13. Verse 19 tells us that Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying... God will surely take care of you and you shall carry my bones from here with you. It's been approximately 360 years and Joseph, who at the time was prime minister of Egypt and a Jew, said the following to his brothers on his deathbed, Genesis chapter 50 verse 24, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. Now what's amazing about this is Joseph had lived 93 of his 110 years in Egypt. 93. He was 17 years old when he was kidnapped. Ended up in Egypt and spent the rest of his life there. He lived there. He worked there. He even died there. But what does he say to his brothers? Don't leave my bones here. I don't belong here. This is not my home. This is not where I want to be laid to rest. This is not where I want my bones to remain. And here's good news for you. Even if you died tonight, before Jesus comes for his people, unless Jesus comes tonight before you die, which would be great, but if you passed away tonight, something happens, you're driving home, you're in an accident, your life is lost, listen, your bones will not remain here. And you say, well, I know, I know, I'm, you know, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I'll be with the Lord. My spirit will be with the Lord. I'm not talking about your spirit. I'm saying your bones, your bones will not remain here. The Bible talks about this. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. It's amazing to me, but there is a, a, a disconnect almost between spirit and body for anyone who dies. Because again, we know the Bible says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So if you die tonight, though your body may go into a coffin or may be created or be put into the ground, though your body goes down, your spirit is immediately, instantaneously, in the twinkle of an eye with the Lord. But the Bible talks about something else that is amazing here. Paul talks about it. 1 Corinthians 15, verse around 50, talks about how we will be raised imperishable. That our physical bodies will be glorified. And I believe, and it's the only way that I can figure out how the scriptures fit together on this one situation, but at that time of the rapture, I personally believe that when the Bible says the dead in Christ will rise, that the bodies of the dead will rise. The souls of those who are with Christ will return with them, and they will receive their glorified bodies, which right now they do not have. I'm not making this up. I mean, this is, again, just putting together what the scriptures seem to indicate. 
Now you and I, if we're alive at the time, and I long to be and I hope that I am, because I would love to just go straight up. I keep telling Cheryl, Christmas is coming, you gotta find me that t-shirt. The one with the Converse tennis shoes that was real popular back in the early 70s. And it's just a pair of Converse tennis shoes. And it says in the twinkling of an eye at the bottom and there's like a whoosh. And no one's standing there, just the shoes and just a big kind of whoosh. Someone's just gone up. That's what I want. But if that's us, if we're alive at the time, guess what? We rise up and our physical bodies, our bones, our flesh, our blood becomes miraculously, amazingly glorified. Our bones will not stay here. Like the movie detailing the first major battle in Vietnam. We were soldiers. The commander in that, played by Mel Gibson, promised that not a single man would be left behind, even if they were killed. And he kept his promise. His foot was the last foot to leave the battlefield after every single man was accounted for, even those who had died. And it's the same with Christ. You will not be left here. Your bones will not remain. Joseph's bones did not remain. Wasn't that an awesome picture? His bones didn't remain in Egypt. And here we have Moses himself. Moses taking the bones of Joseph with him. With his pack, with his stuff. All packed in there. He had the bones of Moses, uh, of Joseph. And off they went. Going on in verse 20. Then they set out from Sukkoth tent town and they camped in the second campsite we'll only see two tonight the second campsite in Etham or Atham on the verge or on the edge sorry of the wilderness now I, I tripped up there it is on the verge of the wilderness now the words say on the edge of the wilderness but here at campsite number two you could say they were on the verge literally they were on the brink of disaster when they camped at Etham, they were at the very edge of the wilderness of Shur. Now, don't get this picture of wilderness messed up in your minds because when you read of the wilderness in the Bible, it is an awful place. It's not a wilderness that you would think of with, with trees and just kind of spread out and kind of wild and, and forested. Not at all. This was flat land. It was dry. It was hot. It was deserted. It was disastrous. It was desolate. And this would be the last place in the world that you would want to lead three million people. Into the wilderness of Shur? What are you doing, Lord? Why would you lead them there? And as they're all in camp there, a few of the Israelites at least must have been wondering, we're going that way? I've heard stories about the wilderness of Shur. People go in there and they never come out alive. What are we going to do for water, Lord? What are we going to do for food? How are we going to survive? But check this out. Etham. When they stopped in Etham, the name Etham means with them with them God brings them right to the edge of disaster right up to the brink and right there on the verge of the worst possible scenario where is the Lord? He's with them He's with them He's with them and things in your life may appear bleak from time to time you may even feel like you're on the brink of disaster, but remember, as Israel was on the brink of the wilderness where they were going to go in, God was with them to the point that the very name of the place was with them, Etham. And what better way to learn that the Lord is with us than when He takes us to the brink and brings us through to the other side? You're going to see this over and over with each of these seven campsites and with this journey Israel is about to take especially over that first year you will watch and see 
how the Lord takes them right up to the edge of disaster. Oh, I can't wait to tell you about the Red Sea. I can't wait to tell you about the crossing and what's going on there. And there's so many interesting implications of that chapter. And we'll look at it next week. And God's going to take them right up to the edge. I mean, they are totally hemmed in. There is no way of escape for them. No way out, literally. And from a human perspective, you might as well just give it up right there. And most of the Israelites were ready to do that at the time. God takes them to the brink, but shows them time after time after time, as He does with us. I'll take you to the verge of disaster, but then I'm going to show that I can take you through with a mighty hand, with a powerful hand. It's that whole issue of God designing us, developing us, training us for eternity. So in Etham, they were on the edge of the wilderness, but God was with them. Verse 21 the Lord was going before them in a pillar, pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. And again we talked about on Sunday how the cloud covered them. How it provided protection from the heat of the desert sun for them. How Psalm 105 verse 39 says he spread the cloud for a covering and a fire Excuse me, to illuminate the night that Israel had it made in the shade. They were covered by the Lord. But this cloud, this cloud was also a massive fireball as well. And in the nighttime, it became very clear that's what was going on up there. That there was fire above them. It wasn't just a cool covering. The Lord also leads us into the wilderness with a fire by night. And what does the fire, what does fire speak of in the Bible? From our studies, do you know what fire talks of or speaks of or points to in the Bible? Any guesses, any thoughts? Judgment. Judgment. It speaks of judgment. It also speaks specifically of trials. It's either judgment or trials. But when fire is talked about in the Bible, those are the two issues. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 tells us, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing. Don't be surprised as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or worse yet, a troublesome meddler. Don't suffer for those reasons, Peter says, but, he says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is a time, he says, and this is an interesting verse, listen closely, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. It's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What is he talking about? Is it time for judgment to begin with the household of God? I thought Jesus took my judgment on the cross. Yes, he did. But there's another judgment in the world. And if you are a part of the household of God, if you're a Christian, you receive the judgment of the world. Well, you're not going to receive the judgment of God that's been paid for, but you will receive the judgment of the world. You will be judged by those around you. You will be mistreated. You will be unfairly viewed 
by people who are not believers, by the world itself, even, unfortunately and amazingly, by other believers sometimes who still are so full of Egypt, they can't see any different. Peter says, judgment's going to begin with the household of God. It's going to be hard. There are going to be some fiery ordeals and trials. Peter's writing to a group of people who are being flambeed by Rome at the time when he says these words. But he goes on to say, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Peter's not talking about eternal judgment. He's talking about temporal judgment, that the world will judge our behavior and our actions and it will bring a railing response and we will face fiery ordeals and judgments in the night God covers me but he also guides me into the night back to this theme we're kind of seeming to come back to several times tonight he guides me into the night he guides me into the fiery trials he takes me into the difficult places he leads me into the wilderness he sticks me in an RV for several months as my in-laws keep having to deal with okay we're going to face the tough stuff here but God still covers me he covers me but he guides me into the hard places think about this I won't read the scripture right now you know the story well Daniel chapter 3 Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego they're bound up with ropes they will not worship Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue and they are tossed where? into the fiery furnace into the oven and what happens to them in the oven? two amazing things number one the ropes that they were bound with burn right off of their hands though they themselves do not burn up immediately though they're in the fire they're free Though they've just been fired by Nebuchadnezzar, they're free. They're not tied to him anymore. They have, they're overcomers. And they're literally walking around in the furnace. But not only are the ropes burned off of them so that they're free, but now when the guards look inside, they see one like a son of the gods. Hmm, I wonder who that was. Jesus is walking with them. Moving around in the furnace with them. They're freed, even though it's hard, even though they're in the fire, they're free, but the Son of God also walked with them. They were in His presence. That's what happens in the fire. That's what happens in the fiery trials by night that will come at us in the world is we get freed more and more from the world as we walk more and more in the presence of God. Man, I may think I'm getting burned by someone. God is just setting me free to love and experience Him in a way that I never thought I could. God may lead you in the fire. He may lead you into the wilderness. He may take you into the night. But He does it to set you free. He does it to pull Egypt out of us. He does it to conform us more and more to the person of Jesus. To get the Egypt out of us, to loose the ties and bonds of this world, and to get us ready. Ready for the promised land. This last verse I'll read to you and then we'll finish tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29. Paul writes, This I say, brethren, the time is short. Time is short. So from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Sorry, hon. And those who weep, he says, as though they did not weep, 
And those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. And those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. Paul says, man, in your marriages, don't worry about the marriage. You focus on the father and consequently the marriage will be better for it. In your life, don't let your emotions take you all weird places. Don't weep like those who weep and then don't rejoice like those who rejoice. Don't get all strung out on feelings, Paul says, because, hey, the time is short. The time is short. Don't go out buying things thinking you're going to have them for long. The big running joke in our family is the day after, actually probably going to be the night of move-in into our house, the rapture is going to happen and we're going to be out of here. <laughs> I'm convinced of it. So look forward to that day. <laughs> Don't buy as if you can possess. Don't make any use of the world other than that which leads to eternity for yourself and the development of your soul or the drawing of someone else to Jesus.